Hi, and welcome to The Mental Society. I'm Amanda Dolan. Today, I am joined by Dr. Robin Henry. Uh, Robin is the Associate Professor of History and the Chair of the Women's Ethnicity and Intersexual, Intersectional Studies at Wichita State University. Um, Robin and I have known each other for 20-ish years, a little longer than that, but we'll say 20. Um, and in 2010, one of Robin's closest friends, Peter, committed suicide. So Robin is going to you know, talk to us a little today about, even 12 years later, how um, his death has impacted her. And um, then I'm going to share a little bit about how Peter's death even impacted me as we get into this. So Robin, thank you so much for being here with me. I know you are busy. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and so, Robin, you know, you and I have talked some, and we've talked a little bit before this. You were up in D.C. where Peter was living at the time, um, and the day that he committed suicide. That... Yeah, I was there for a conference that we were both going to attend, and I decided that I would fly out a little bit early just to spend some time with him. It had been maybe about a year since we'd seen each other. I just wanted to have a little bit of fun time before kind of the conference and all of like the other people that we knew kind of got, um, got involved and took up more of our time. So that was kind of awesome that you got to have that time with him, even yeah. though you didn't know at the time it was going to be the last time. Yeah. Know. I, d I just continually think how, um, serendipitous it was. This is actually a conference that sometimes is more difficult for me to go to because it takes place, um, in the late part of March, early April, which is not often a good time for me to leave um, my classes. It's kind of when things are starting to get, you know, really intense. And I just decided that this was the year that I was going to just go. And what a year to decide you, you were going to go. And when you got there and you, you know, saw Peter, did you have any idea that anything was going on for him like no I didn't I mean I can I am so happy that we were able to spend the time that we did we did a lot of our favorite things it was an unusually warm week and sunny in DC for early late May late March early April and it felt like this amazing fun time to just to reconnect we went to the sauna we went to you know, it was cherry blossom season on DC and like, it was like, I've never hit it before or since at peak bloom. And it was, I'm just like, we went to um, the movies, we cooked, um, we kind of messed around in his apartment. He was trying to rearrange some stuff to get his office set up for work um, in the summer. Cause he's also a historian. Um, I went to class with him. He was teaching at George Washington university. So it was like, I stepped into life there at this amazing, perfect moment and got to spend five days with my best friend before everything just turned absolutely horrible. And, you know, when you and I were talking earlier, you, you mentioned that when you told people that, that he had died, they were like, but I saw him yesterday or I saw him two days ago and everything was, was fine. Is that how you felt too, even staying with him that, you know, for the most part, everything was normal, whatever normal is. 
Yeah. I mean, I knew that Peter had um, attempted suicide in the past. He was at the time of his death, 37, and he had attempted suicide, I think, when he was about 15, 16 years old. Um, when I spoke with his dad, one of the first things his dad said, it was like, oh, I thought we'd gotten past this. Um, I also knew just like having been friends with him for over a decade that he had ups and downs, that he kind of, he was somebody who prior to, you know, our current environment would take mental health days. And I think had a level of depression that was maybe deeper than most people assumed. And then um, there were some things that I learned about him and things that were happening in his life that I had never known. And he would have never shared with me um, that I, that contributed very significantly to, to his death kind of in that moment. But there was, there were a lot of things that could have been signs, but also are part of everybody's life. And so um, yes and no, I think it's easier to see those looking back, but it's, I think, also pretty dangerous to say, well, somebody has depression, they're on the path to suicide. Because I think there are a lot of people in the United States that have um, various forms of depression that are not kind of at that cataclysmic right. point. And I think, you know, I've shared this before in podcasts and things I've written, you know, about 20% of Americans at some point will receive treatment for a mental illness. But only 5% have what's considered a serious or severe mental illness that impacts your daily functioning. And so I think that oftentimes some of those, right, that other 15 or so percent of people that, like you said, are just, they're depressed, they're anxious, there's stuff going on, but it doesn't seem big enough, even to them, perhaps, to go get the help. Yeah. 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 Or like they're, they think of depression as something that is debilitating in life and they're going about their daily life. They have a good job. They're successful at it. They have friendships. They, you know, go out and about from time to time and they're living a life. And I think our vision of depression, though, I think it is changing is one in which like you're severely depressed and unable to engage in the world. And Peter was very much able to engage in the world. Um, You know, he was a very, open personality. Um, He was fun and funny, very smart, and had a lot of friends. And I think that was one of the things that made it very difficult when I was calling people or contacting people that it was difficult for them to believe that they had just seen this person a few days ago. I'm like, yes, but you saw him with me. So like, let me tell you what has now just happened. Um, I think it was hard for them to believe that this person that they knew in one way could then also be in another way right and it's it's kind of like we were talking earlier too as we're recording this um the dancer twitch who's on ellen just committed suicide and and like him you know he is this bigger than life personality in theory right he's got everything going for him he has a beautiful wife and children and a lovely home and a career and money and he's well liked and so Sounds kind of like Peter too, like everyone liked him and he seemed to have it all together. And then there's something that we don't know going on. Yeah. And and like you said, there was other things going on in the background with his life. And I would also, you know, venture to guess that suicide wouldn't be the normal 
thing that most people, even when they have a hard thing going on, like that's not their first like thought is. I'm yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I think he had in his mind kind of like, I just kind of think that there were things that he was going to like do or not do depending on certain circumstances. And I mean, that suicide was an option for him before, and I don't think it ever totally got off the table for him as an option. And what kind of treatment did he get during the course of his life for his mental health? He never got treatment. He never saw a therapist. Um, his mom died when he was four, and his dad is a very kind man. Um, who just He was, a, you know, an older parent who you know, would have left a lot of like the nurturing and caretaking to his wife. And so he was not a nurturing figure. Um, when Peter was a teenager, his stepmom came into the picture and she was very much kind of that nurturing person, but he never received therapy. I don't think that his family would have, that's just not an option that they would have seen. And by the time he was able to make those choices for himself, he was just adamant that he wasn't going to do it. I told him one time that I thought that maybe he would benefit from therapy just because, you know, graduate school is very intense. It was very hard on him. I mean, physically, he was almost 300 pounds. Like he had this crazy cholesterol, like physically he was not well after grad school. And I just said, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to like start new and maybe go talk to somebody about these things. And he, his comment was, if I go into therapy now, everything will unspool. And I'm like, Okay. And so in hindsight, I can kind of understand what he was talking about, maybe with kind of things that were going on with him. But I thought, well, maybe, yeah, all the things that are terrible in your life might unspool. And we can like, kind of, I don't know, comb it out and see what happens. But um, it was very, it was made very clear to me that that was not a welcome suggestion. And so I never made it again. And I don't think that I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty confident that regardless of when I made that comment again, it would have been met with the same, same same response. He was just not open to it. And I think that that, you know, that's probably something that you're seeing even change with your students now that more are willing or interested in getting some kind of help, whether it's therapy or an online support group or, or something that more people are reaching out for help now than before yeah and our university actually has this amazing program suspenders for hope that focuses in on mental health and suicide prevention and that everybody in our community is part of like you get kind of a you know a crash course and everybody is kind of told um, how to engage with each other and that the idea is that we're all in this together and that we can all be at various stages of prevention. And so I, as a professor, can um, I can actually report people to um, a care team. Um, I can obviously talk with students. Um, when they come and talk to me, I can you know, give them resources. But there's this growing sense of community around mental health in general mm -hmm. and suicide prevention specifically that started a little bit before the pandemic, but absolutely kind of exploded in need and um, significance on campus. 
Right. I think, um, you know, <clears throat> the pandemic started almost three years ago now. That is wild to think of, as I just said that. Um, yeah. And it still feels very much like we're not back to normal yet. Yeah. But we're still struggling with, you know, the trauma of being at home and um, never like <laughs> feeling like we never left the house. We never, um, we lost lots of those personal interactions. And so it sounds like building this community up, even though I know you said it started prior to the pandemic, sounds like a really great way for people to stay connected and have a support system. Um, yeah. Now, like these, these support systems, are they people that like, like, you know, or is it just kind of a, it's kind of like, I'm, you know, we have this woman who leads this and she's part of like the clinical psychologists that are on campus. But then she's like, you know, students engage with you all faculty, <coughs> excuse me, so much more than they do with us. Mm -hmm. So like we have like these little playing cards that we have these, these questions that we can ask students to have like mental health breaks during class and, you know, just opportunities for us all to kind of like check in with each other. And there's a pack for faculty, there's a pack for staff and administrators, and there's a pack for students, because we all ask each other different questions. Like, I don't expect that a student is going to respond to me asking a question in the same way that they would appear. And right. so understanding those differences has been really good. And there's just some things that it would be very inappropriate for me to ask a student, right. and for them to tell me. Um, so it's just kind of it's building this community that I think is really good. And this awareness, because you're also dealing with people from wide varieties of generations. And right. I tell students like you all are so much better about talking about mental health than us older people. And then yeah. I was like, just keep it up. And it, I don't know, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing, but even then like it's, it's a system that's overwhelmed by the pandemic. It is. And you know, we've, We've seen rates of suicide, like they were on a steady climb, steady incline, increase. I can't think of the word. I'm, and then they declined um, in 2019 and 20, but then they went back up. And I think that that has a lot to do with the pandemic, feeling isolated. I remember though, during that time, I told my therapist after we got through the first couple of weeks, I was like, everyone's freaking out. And I'm like, feeling like not terribly scared. And I remember him being like, oh man, it's because you've like lived in this chaotic trauma place that like this feels normal to you. So like, you're just moving along like it's fine. And I'm like, huh, I didn't think of it that way. But I can imagine that people that don't see the doom and gloom all the time would have an even more difficult time than we were already having. Um, yeah. So like, there are changes now in the academic community to really focus on everyone's mental health, including students and faculty and staff, um, because it is something that impacts college age students at a higher rate than our generation and older. Cause yeah. it's, yeah. You know, I, I don't know how old most of your students are, but I'm assuming a big chunk of them fall in the age range of 10 to 34, which yeah. I'm sure not very many of them are 10, probably more 34, but 
you know, suicide is the second leading cause of death in that age group and only behind accidents. Yeah. So like, it's just a wild, like, why aren't we treating this in a different way? And it sounds like at Wichita State, like they're making um, some changes there to really like help make it a better place for students and for faculty open up conversations. Yeah. And, and it sounds like too, with Peter, like not having those open conversations made it harder because, and I mean, I, I've never met Peter. I just know from my experience that men in particular struggle with going to therapy or at least did, I think it's less so now um, because well, you gotta be a man and men don't have feelings. Men don't talk about those things. And, um, it's, it's, it's hard and sad. And I, I hate that anyone has to experience the loss of a loved one in this way, especially because, you know, how you said he was 37. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, which is just interesting point though. I was 36, almost 37. Um, when I planned my suicide, um, and while, you know, I, I talk, talked about like hearing a voice and all of that, which if you're interested, you can go back and listen to a previous episode and hear more of my story. But Robin, you've been pretty open about sharing about your loss of Peter on Facebook, on social media and people you talk to. And by you doing that, for me, it's helped me continue with my care because knowing you, like I said, for a couple decades. Um, and I know you enough to know that I didn't want anyone else to experience the pain that it was clear that you were experiencing. And so I'm so grateful that you have shared your story, um, because it has helped me be able to continue to share mine and to be here for my kids. So obviously, like you, you know, sharing your story has impacted me. But why else do you talk about Peter and what it meant for you? Um. Well, initially, and every time I hear you say that, it just it floors me. It chokes me up, and I'm just so happy that something that was awful for me was helpful for you and maybe others. Um, I'd like to think that I was doing it in a way that was altruistic. But honestly, I needed to get it physically out of my body. Like I needed to emote um, a lot of at the time I was not married and I was living by myself. And I think a lot of my friends on Facebook who were also in many ways connected in some way to Peter um, had concerns about me. And I know statistically, like the person who's like the survivor of the suicide has a higher possibility of committing suicide or dying by suicide themselves. But um, I never personally felt like I was in that type of danger, but I felt like Facebook was a way for me to like check in without like having everybody worry and constantly contacting Mm -hmm. me. Like I needed to be alone. I'm somebody who just naturally needs to be alone and quiet a lot of the time. But um, I wanted to make sure that, you know, friends knew that I was actually doing okay. Um, and it just, 
for some reason, it was just the easiest format for me to express what was going on. Mm-hmm. And the pe- people on Facebook were, had been in that time, I think I had like 150 friends. So people that were, <laughs> were fairly close to me knew what was happening. It was actually one of the ways that I had initially been able to contact a lot of his friends and people that we shared in common, but maybe I didn't have personal contact with. And then people that he knew that I didn't. And so um, it was this format and this tool that, um, you know, allowed me to do this and sharing with people kind of what was happening to me was a way for me to be fairly honest. Like I was doing okay, but like, okay meant like I got out of bed, I fed myself, I took the dog for a walk, you know, what, you know, those types of like basic maintenance things were happening, but that like, there was a part of me that was just really not okay. And, um, that was really kind of what I was doing with the sharing. And now, um, that it's been over a decade since he died, I share less, but I do like on the anniversary of his, his birthday and of his death kind of share the circumstances because I definitely want people to understand the impact and the long-term impact that suicide has on the people that you leave behind. And that I always talk about that each year has been different in terms of how I'm feeling about it. Um, Sometimes it's more intense. So like when I was in therapy, probably much later than I should have been. And that was a very intensely felt year. So I almost felt like I was back to square one in terms of how big of an impact it had on me because I was going through um, kind of PTSD trauma Mm -hmm. response therapy. And so in this very intense year, I had these two anniversaries that felt like they were just immediate. And yet most of the time it doesn't feel that way or the year that I turned 38. So I was then older than Peter, which is a really odd thing to do is Uh to be older than somebody who was older than you. Um, That was kind of a strange year for me too. So um, sharing that journey, um, I think also kind of just, it keeps me connected to him. It keeps his memory alive. It keeps parts of him that are, important alive but I think it also lets people know this isn't done like the you know the stages of grief like you're not done with it at any point like this is just something that you're with and as I've gotten further away from it I can see that more as something that can be helpful for other people but at the first it was just it was almost like it was just like it needed to get out of me and this was just the easiest way to do it and I think when emotions build up, right, even for me, if I don't talk about things that are going on, I will explode. Like I'll yell at my kids for something that they didn't even really do, or I'll, I'll even get mad at like the person on the, you know, the phone that's trying to help me. Um, yeah. And, and it's not their fault. It's just there's, I haven't you know, dealt with the feeling that's going on. And I know like for me, my dad died when I was 19 of cancer and we knew it was coming and it was, you know, it was not a surprise. And yet I was still really angry with my dad for dying over something that he really had no control over. So I'm wondering if you felt any anger towards Peter after he died. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, 
I was visiting him. I was in his apartment and I was basically the person that the police came and told. And I'm like, great, thank you. Um, and, you know, there's a part of me that was like, of course, this is the last act of love that I can give to him is to do all of this external planning. But what he also gave me was the trauma of calling over 30 people and having to repeat this conversation over and over and over again, including the very first call I made was to his dad. And I, Peter was in this apartment that was absolutely fantastic, except it was like a bunker. So cell phones were not great inside of this apartment. I mean, he wasn't in the basement. It was just like this concrete cinder block building. It was impenetrable to cell phones. So I used his phone. And of course, we all have caller ID. And the very first thing, and I own the last time his dad said his name like this, was his dad thought it was him calling. And it's like, Peter, and this joyful voice, your son is calling you. And that's hard to know that that's the last time he said that Dad. in that way. And it was thinking that his son was calling. And in fact, it was me calling. And he always has said that I did the right thing in not having the police call them. Cause I asked, I was like, can I call his dad? Um, we were not married. So it's not as if I had any right to being in any sort of succession. I was like, I know his dad, please let me call him. And so, um, I don't think that people understand um, that all of those calls, that's what I did for about three days before his dad and his brother and sister arrived and kind of helped take over the, the cleaning up of somebody's life. I mean, I had no right to go claim a body. I had no right to go identify a body. Um, it still hurts me to know that he was physically in a place that was like, you know, the cold and dark and yeah, alone. yeah it's, it's not like you put the morgue in like the best part of town and so right. it's just like he was someplace that we never went like it was just completely foreign and so you know I was just there um luckily my parents had these lifelong friends that lived in the DC area and when I called my mom and told her um what had happened she called them and they came and got me and I stayed there and I um, came into, I rode the Metro in every day with the husband and I, I went to work. I went to Peter's apartment and I just went through the list and called people. And, you know, increasingly I was getting people who could then call other people or talk to other people. And then, you know, there was something I posted on Facebook is like, if you're connected with Peter, please, you know, contact me. I didn't put anything out as to what had happened, but just like, please, please, please contact me. Um, you know, that was my job for a few days. And I also realized that I was cold calling people, some of whom I didn't know, giving them this experience, you know, maybe in their office. Um, one of his best friends from high school um, works on film and movie sets. And he like identifies specifically where he was in New York City. Um, you know, when, when I called him, he was on set. Like, it's not like, you know, you assume like, well, it's dinner time. I'm not going to call somebody or I know they're at work. I'm not going to call. I was just calling anyone, any time of day. 
Um, and I feel like this little ray of like doom just like injected in people's lives. And, you know, of course they probably wanted to know, but I also know that I was probably the worst part of that day mm-hmm. for those people. And you don't want to be the person always like the, with the bad news, yeah. um, the doom and gloom, right? person like it was it became your job to go take care of all of this for him that there was the cleaning up and there's you know the his apartment was going to need to be packed up and his office you know like yeah it's not I think people forget that there are all those other steps when someone dies and you know like when my father died we knew he was dying and, you know, we had time to prepare for it. And with Peter, there was no, like, this is happening today. And so we're spending the next week preparing for it. Yeah. I mean, it was completely unexpected. I mean, I'm always very thankful that I was there because I was just there for a conference. I wanted to come a few days early to spend time with my best friend and you know, the day he died was the day that I registered for the conference. And so I didn't actually do anything there. But, you know, it, it was the end of the trip that would have been a little busier. Um, but I'm glad that I was there because I, it would have been a long time before his dad and brother and sister would have been able to get there and really kind of take care of things in a mm-hmm. way. And they wouldn't necessarily have known who his friends were to contact. Um I think that would have been really hard. Um, one, his brother and sister came, um, I think a day, maybe two days before his dad and stepmom came. And they were helpful in terms of um, helping me clean the apartment and kind of go through some stuff that they recognized or I knew was part of like their family's possessions. Like, oh, I think he has this picture because of you or this is a stuffed animal that you gave him. Um but it was still something where for about three days I was by myself coming into work eight thirty nine a.m. Like I took a lunch break, went to, like it was the most. It was, and it, it was your job for those few days yeah. just to clean up the mess. I hate saying it that way, but yeah. I mean, it's kind of where, you know, he left you was with all of these things to all the pieces to put back together, all the people to contact. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned Facebook, which I think like, I mean, that's how you and I have stayed connected over the years. Yeah. I think like of all the people from high school and college that in grad school, I mean, all the different times in my life where I can stay in touch with people thanks to Facebook. But also I think that it can be, um, it can create a false sense of relationships sometimes um, to where like, we think we know what's going on in someone's life because, well, they post all this happy stuff on Facebook. So they must be happy or, um, you know, like look at, like, look at their beautiful home. And and I've shared like my house is, has been a, project for me. It's been transformative for me personally, as well as transformative in my space. Um, 
But for so long, I looked at pictures of other people's homes on Facebook and I thought, well, man, everyone like has nothing on their kitchen counters and like their kitchen table is always cleared and there's, you know, the dog toys are always in their basket in the right place next to the fireplace or whatever. And that was never like how I lived. And so I think that even on Facebook, when I was at my sickest, I was doing a great job at looking as if I had it all together. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what we do. I mean, that's why would you show anybody your dirty laundry pile? Like, (laughs) that's not how, like, that's not the part of my life that I want to necessarily share with everybody. So Facebook can be a really odd place, but it is the place that I've connected with people and stayed connected with people. And, you know, I I talked a little bit about this before, but I think also like the um, anonymity that is the internet can be great because it can allow people to, you know, especially I think of places like, you know, Reddit or private Facebook groups and things like that, where you can share some of the deeper things because people don't necessarily know who you are and they're not going to come running and banging down your door and it feels a little safer. And also it's a really easy place to be awful and hateful to people because we're anonymous. And on the other side as well, because it's anonymous, if you do need help, sometimes it can be hard to get connect that person connected because you don't necessarily know where they are or who their family is and things like that. Um, yeah. So yeah, I have a love hate relationship with social media. I think it can be the greatest thing. And I've made some amazing friends that way and kept in touch with amazing people that way. Um, and you used it to help make your job easier. I hate like it wasn't easy, but you at least could find some people that you may not have been able to find yeah easily um and what a gift that was not just to peter for making sure people knew that his life had ended that you were able to connect with his parents and his dad and stepmom and family and help them through that really hard process of the aftermath of any death much less one there's probably a lot of questions you know people always want the but why? And, or the, no, I, like you said, I saw him yesterday and he was fine. So what happened? And, you know, one of the things that I've struggled with a lot is I don't think it's our place to out people with their mental health. Yeah. And also I think that we, we need to talk about it still more. And one of the things that, um, and, and I, just throw this out there because I was talking to a friend the other day. Um, you know, in our county, there are the like, there's the manner of death and then the cause of death. And so manner of death is, you know, natural cause, suicide, homicide, accident, like there's, you know, um, and then the cause of death might be hanging if it's a suicide. But what we don't do is we don't say the cause of death is hanging with contributing factors of depression or bipolar. And I just wonder what it would be like if we included some of those things. So people saw how big mental health 
is and how it really does impact so much. Yeah. And I was talking to a friend uh, recently um, we're kind of actually kind of not comparing, but like discussing these two deaths in our lives. And um, her husband had recently died after a long battle with alcoholism. And she was like, it's kind of the same thing. They just did it in different time periods in terms of slowly killing yourself through mm-hmm. mental illness of some form. And I think that that would be so fantastic. And I think one of the things that I'm always I I agree. I think outing people in their mental health is just that can actually set things back. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I think we need to be mindful of is that um, talking about it shouldn't then also be like diagnosing. Like sometimes you just want to like make sure that somebody's okay and like talk with them in a way that can be um, maybe helpful just checking in just from a place not, of love right like just yeah. hey i haven't heard from you in a while is everything okay because sometimes right like just like yes i have a diagnosis but you know like my neighbor across the street might not have a diagnosis that doesn't mean that they're not having a really difficult period yeah um, and a difficult period that may not require actual medication I think everyone needs to go to therapy, but that's like my own. um, I just think therapy is beneficial for everyone because we all have stuff. Um, And so, yeah, like checking in, it doesn't have to be right. Like I'm standing here ready to like Peter jump off a bridge and have that be the end. That's not where we need to have the intervention. The intervention needs to happen well before that. And people need to know that going to therapy or being on medication doesn't mean that you're weak or they're flawed or right. Like, yeah. And I think, I think it just normalizes the process that I think, you know, one of the conversations more recently that we've been having that I really appreciate is identifying mental health as a similar component as physical health. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you would stay home and get treatment if you had a broken arm. Right. It's not like you'd be like, yeah, I can set this myself and it'll just, it'll do what it'll do. You would never do that. Well, and so, I mean, and if you did like that, your arm would not heal properly. And I think we need to see that with people with um, mental health as well. Like we need to take care of it. Everything from the very small, like, hey, I need a bit of a break today to much larger intervention with um, intensive therapy and medication. And, you know, you talked about Peter taking mental health days. I know for my kids who are one in eighth grade, one who's a freshman, um, I allow them to take mental health days um, because their mental health, like you said, is part of their health. I bought like yeah. mental health is healthcare. Like mental health care is healthcare. Um, because, you know, like you and I, like I mentioned to you that rates of suicide for people who have been diagnosed with bipolar are one in 20 versus 14 out of a hundred thousand. Like that number is too big for me to be like one in this number. So um, like, that's a huge difference. And so, like, having a diagnosis of bipolar 
does mean that I'm more likely to commit suicide. Whereas, um, when I'm, you know, just being sad because you broke up with your boyfriend, you might still need some therapy, but it's not that like all hands on deck, we've got to like triage this situation. Yeah. Um, and I think as we continue to talk about it and talk about, you know, the mental health days and um, going to therapy is just being part of our normal care. Um, I think as we talk more about that, people are going to get more help. So now we just need to make sure that we have the resources and have it be affordable. Um, yeah, because I think that's definitely a barrier and you being on a college campus, you have a counseling center, right? That students. Yeah. And, um, it's $10 and that $10 is negotiable. So it's affordable to every student if they want. Yes. Where we're struggling is availability. They cannot keep enough staff on hand. And in particular, as our campus, we're an emerging Hispanic serving university. And we are, we have a, um, I think we have about 11% um, African-American population. So as we get more people of color on campus, we we need to be aware that we need to bring in therapists who are, have that same racial ethnic experience because some of what they're experiencing is racial trauma. Um, we also, we are apparently a very active and um, positive um, LGBTQ campus, which I know what we do and I'm excited about it, but we got rated recently as um, kind of in the A range, which is awesome. Um, you might not think about that with a camp- with campus in the middle. Right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, we need to have um, as diverse a therapy population, therapist population as we do our students. And that's where we're lagging behind. Um, and I, I don't think that that's unusual for campuses or locations anywhere. I think, you know, the research suggests that we only have about 30% of needed mental health care providers in the United States. And those numbers are lower and more rural rural areas and lower income areas. Um, and therapy, quite frankly, can be unaffordable for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we need to consider. And there's, there's going to be no like big answer today to figure that out. But um, I like just want to thank you for coming and sharing some of your story and how, you know, that you were traumatized as a result of this and you required additional care. Um, And that that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. You experienced a huge trauma and a huge loss. And I think anyone would expect that kind of response, that kind of traumatic. And also I'm grateful for Peter's family that you were there for them. And I'm grateful to you for sharing your story so that I see how staying alive helps specifically my kids because they need me way more. I didn't think they needed me, but they do, even if they really don't think they do now because they're 13 and 15 and they know everything. Um, But thank you for being on open and honest and sharing 
your experience so that I can be here to share mine and to um, hopefully help others share theirs um, because they're still going to be here. So um, thank you for sharing your story. Um, With that, I'm going to share our mental morsel, which is just a little um, tip about your mental health. As we're going into this time of spending time with families um, and friends and lots of holiday parties, um, and Robin even kind of mentioned this, it's important to keep alcohol use kind of to a minimum so that we are getting the sleep and the rest that we need. Um, Oftentimes we are using alcohol to self-medicate, especially in those family type situations, right? Like Aunt Brenda is making me crazy, so I'm going to have an extra glass of wine so I can handle her. Um, But substance use can get in the way of our ability to function at work, at school, um, and maintain a stable home life um, and handle difficult things because when you're drinking or hungover, you're just not who you really are. So that may mean that you need to take a break and go for a little walk and get out of that situation or um, leave. Because you know what? You can leave even when it doesn't feel like you can. Um, And just notice not saying don't drink it all because Lord knows I love a glass of wine, but how much and where and why. Um, and I just think like, what am I missing too if I'm drunk this whole time at this party with these people I love? So with that, we have reached the end of today's episode. Um, so thank you, Robin, for joining us. And thank you for listening um, and learning more about how mental health and our society meet. Now go out and open a conversation. Discover the ways that mental health is being experienced in your world. You can find more of the Mental Society podcast in all the places where you find your favorite podcast. You can find additional resources and articles by visiting um, our website, thementalsociety.com. Remember that you are not alone in your struggles. Hope and help are all around you. And until next time, this is Amanda Dolan, wishing you good health, mental and otherwise. Thank you.